like I said before, call me Ishmael. <laughs> of course, everybody's got his own Moby Dick. A great white whale that you pursue remorselessly and senselessly through the darkening seas. Until finally you fling that harpoon into a, the vital spot, and the next thing you know... Oh, by the way, our uh, Moby Dick here is named Leader. We'll get him yet. Rasmataz and Rudy Tootsie. Be careful, man. Very philosophical tonight. <laughs> Okay? Very good. Now, it was clean. It was well done. There we go. Hello. Testing, testing. One, two, three. Yeah, the sound of Ahab's peg leg banging away on that quarter deck. Kachunga. 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 And then he'd turn around so you'd hear him. He'd spit into the sea. Kachunga. I just can't see Gregory Peck as Ahab. Somehow, he just doesn't... Would you give me, please, a little of that patriotic music once again, Bob, to get things out of the way? Just a little bit. That's it. Rasmus and Rudy, 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 Mount. Yes, uh, this has a very symbolic meaning in my poor, weasen, mean little life. This music right here. In fact, this specific recording. Bring it out. It's the sound of Ahab's peg leg banging on the quarter deck of my existence. <laughs> what do you mean, why? I'll tell you why. We got 45 minutes. What do you want me to do? Tell you the punchline now? What would we do then? Fill with Lester Smith? Come on, bring it up. See, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm adept. Playing the catfish. You know, just playing. How many of you have ever fished for catfish? I mean, really fished for catfish. Well, uh, give me a little existential music in there, Robert. And I will tell you about fishing for catfish. And how a man who has once fished for catfish in the northern lakes. With the darkening times coming over the vast Stygian forest of the north. He can never, ever go back to become the same uh, lily-white, pure soul that he once was. I find myself on a northern lake in northern Michigan, the thumb of Michigan. This is a strange part of the world. It's a kind of thumb, if you take your map and look at it, and you'll see it's a thumb that sticks up into Canada. And the Great Lakes hang down like some big, decadent grapes down to the south. And I am in this dark, dark lake. I am sitting in a rented rowboat, one dollar and a half an hour. The temperature is perhaps 34 degrees. It is late in the fall. I have been told that the catfish are biting. I am not a catfish man, particularly. I am more of a northern pike-type fisherman, or a smallmouth bass aficionado. But I find myself in the darkening gloom, 
seated in a rented rowboat, fishing with two and a half feet of line in the shallows right next to the dock for the uh, alleged catfish which are about to bite. Do you want to hear more of this? No, I better not. Better not. Better not tell you the rest of this. Better let you sit out there happily in your Mustangs. Better let you sit out there with your Bob Dylan records. Uh, happy and delighted in your knowledge of superiority. I better let that hang out there. <laughs> what a rotten person. Yeah, terrible rotten person. All right, then, then, now watch for the other one. Now, I'll give you the cue. Yeah, watch it, though. Now, another scene. I am lying in that half state, that half slumber. Hey, how many of you, is anybody out there, uh, anybody out there, uh, uh, please, I'm, I'm going to have to have a little assistance here before we go any further. Uh, how many of you have ever, have ever run afoul of, uh, of uh, James Branch Cobble's Jurgen? Did you ever read that? You ever read any of this? Uh, this is not exactly the village voice. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's got there's some peculiar images in it. And th before we go any further, I want somebody out there who happens to be acquainted with James Branch Cobble. Uh, some people call it Cabell. I think the correct pronunciation, although I may be wrong, is James Branch Cobble, who wrote a book called Jurgen, a historian of some note of a few years back. Uh, how many of you, uh, or does anybody know the line that I am referring to? Now, Lee, listen carefully because you're going to have to answer. Does anybody know the line that refer, that, that Jurgen uses to describe the instant just after night stops and just before dawn begins? He describes that time, that peculiar time of well, no identity really. It's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful description of that time. And he says this is the time uh, of uh, maximum insecurity. <laughs> he says this is the time when when it all hangs on the balance. Well, all right, all right, there it is. It's that time. See, just after dawn has stopped, and just before, well, after really after night has really ceased to be night. Night has petered out. You know, somewhere off there in the. I guess night winds up and goes to bed off in the west someplace, doesn't it? Uh, I believe, even in Missouri. And uh, it's just at that moment, see. And dawn is just beginning to sneak up on cat's feet. And I am lying there in my bunk. I'm lying in my sack, warm. I am half conscious, half unconscious, just lying there, uh, sort of uh, basking in this warmth, this warmth. Of the of the sheets, this warmth of this this tight blanket that was laying down flat on me, and just barely conscious of where I was, not even really exactly, more or less conscious only of one thing that I was alive, like a turtle. Is a turtle aware that a turtle is living in Lake Erie? Uh, I doubt it. He just he knows he's there. That's about it, you see. And I'm lying there, one eye vaguely open, and I'm scrunching down more and more comfortable. And uh, you got that You got that big smasheroni? All right, I'm lying there. And it's got to come on big, Bob. I'm lying there, see, with my eyes just sort of half dozing, half open, half dozing, drifting in and out, when all of a sudden... Instantly the lights go on. Instantly, the whole world is plunged into yellow, artificial, incandescent light. 
Immediately, thousands of feet begin to run back and forth, yelling and screaming, guys hollering about dropping socks. I can smell the butt cans. What a fantastic moment of reality. Hey, there you've got scene number two. Now I will sketch for you scene number three. I am, I am on a stairway. And it is a long, narrow stairway that goes straight upward and straight down. And I'm about halfway up. The stairway is perhaps two and a half feet across. It's dusty. You can smell the old boards and the countless, countless ancient feet that have tread this way. You can smell the old nails rotting and rusting away. You can smell the dirty glass of the basement windows down below. You can smell the rats that have lived down in the cellar far below me there. And I can smell that kind of, that kind of uh, soft, uh, yellowish smell of an attic up ahead. And I am stuck halfway up this staircase. I have, I have before me a, a, a refrigerator. A giant old refrigerator, the kind with the big round things. Give me a little existential music, please, will you? Just a little existential music. And this refrigerator is tilting back down on me. It weighs maybe 27,000 pounds. And it is weighing down on my head and my shoulders. My knees are buckling. I can see under the refrigerator, I can see Schwartz's feet. Schwartz is holding the other end of the refrigerator. We have been moving this refrigerator upwards now for over four and a half centuries. Our job at five cents an hour is to move all the refrigerators from hell up to the attic and then take all the refrigerators from the attic and move them back down to hell. Endlessly. Over and over at a temperature of 110 degrees and the humidity standing at minus four our lungs gasping gasping for just the slightest bit of moisture and then after every hour as we fall dehydrated to the side the owner of the business allows us time to buy one coke which costs us five cents which is exactly what we earned for the hour preceding the coke guzzling we move. That vast refrigerator laying down on my head and my shoulders. Schwartz grunting and I could see a little trail of perspiration dripping down from his, his kid tennis shoes in front of me. And I could see behind me a long line of perspiration dripping down out of my kid tennis shoes as we struggled upward. Brothers to Sisyphus. Very good. Now, that's scene number three. Are you ready yet for scene number four? You don't think you are, huh? <laughs> Speaking of endless rocks that are endlessly pushed up, endless mountains, this is WOR AM and FM New Yorkie. Here's Gene Shepard for the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times would like to take this opportunity to direct a special message to New York Times readers. Uh, of late, there's been a distressing tendency among Times readers to be overbearing, uh, to flaunt their superior knowledge, and in general, to throw their weight around. We would like you to take this oath right now. I promise to lose at least one argument a week to a less informed 
reader of another newspaper just because I'm a simple, kind human being. All right, New York Times readers, raise your hand now. I promise to lose one argument a week. It ain't easy, but try. The New York Times, once again, leads the way in human kindness. Start home delivery today. Call Murray Hill 70700. That's MU70700. The New York Times. If you're without it, you're not with it. Hey, listen, that isn't Shepard. That's a phonus boy. Who is this guy going around town? Isn't there something you can do about that? What if I went around town and called myself Clark Gable? I mean, seriously, what if I started to say, this is uh, Johnny Carson here, friends? I, you know, uh, speaking of uh, phonus boy, oh, uh, we do have a little thing we'd like to remind you of. Uh, we'll be at the limelight. This Saturday night, and, uh, you know, I, I seriously think this Saturday night, I think we ought to take the bull by the horns. And, um, uh, <laughs> hey, listen, did you see, uh, did you see that terrible movie, that late, late movie that was on here a couple of weeks ago? About these three guys, they keep showing the same movie about these three guys that are married, and one guy is a newlywed, and the other two guys, one of them, one of whom is William Frawley. Uh, they call it Three Married Men. Did you see that? That is one of the funniest movies I've seen in a long time. It's this old comedy. And there was one scene where they're all sitting around and having breakfast. And uh, this wife says, uh, she says something like, uh, well, I always say you never can tell. And this other, this other guy, this other guy looks at her. Her husband says, oh, that's very good. That's very good. Did you think of that yourself? And uh, <laughs> how many of you, do you remember that, 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 hey, did anybody call in about Jerrigan there? Not a soul. Why is it I remember all this crud? Why is it that I've got such a fantastic memory for that kind of jazz? Uh, maybe they just couldn't leave those three indescribable scenes. Uh, speaking of that, we have Rover with us tonight, uh, the Rover 2000. Speaking of indescribable scenes. And I have a suspicion uh, that is founded on a lot of, uh, actual evidence uh, that uh, is irrefutable, that the Rover 2000 and several other cars of this particular type are genuinely a forerunner of the automobile of the future. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the big car magazines not too long ago awarded them their, dis their design award for the year, one of the toughest of all the car magazines. It's a great machine, and uh, if you have never seen the Rover 2000, and you live out in the stick somewhere, and you'd like a picture of it, we would be glad to send you one. In case you don't know anything about Rover, Rover is the same company that builds the justly famous Rover Land Rover, uh, which uh, is a great machine and is used mostly to run over rhinoceri. Or is it rhinoceroses? It's rhinoceri, or is it hippopotami? Uh, nevertheless, this is the same Rover company, and uh, we would be glad to send you pictures. They will not put you on a prospect list, I guarantee it. We'll just send you the material. Uh, send your name and address to Rover here in care of me. I'm uh, Clark Gable, Rover, in care of me, 1440 Broadway, WOR, New York, okay? And one more note, we will be at the limelight this Saturday night. And and look, I, I'm going to ask one, one favor. Uh, it seems like every week this is growing. Uh, more and more, I am getting letters from people, and, and people are leaving phone call messages and one thing and another here uh, at the station. Uh, they're, they're trying uh, somehow uh, to, to feel, or at least to say, that I have something to do with the reservations at the limelight. I, I don't have anything to do with that. Uh, 
So uh, even though I sympathize with you, when you send me a letter and you tell me that your boyfriend's coming back from Japip and that uh, you've, uh, you've promised him that you're going to make the seam next Saturday and when, when will I get on the stick and do something about it, I just can't. That's not my province. And if you would like to come down to the limelight, uh, give the limelight a call and uh, make a reservation and and to hang in there. That's all I can say about it. But I don't write to me. I'd love to. I'd love to help you, but uh, just don't. You know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's funny. I, I got a I got a letter from this this kind of thing is a kind of, is really the sort of thing that really uh, really infuriates you in a way. I got a letter from somebody who uh, who wrote me. And they said that we've come all the way from Delaware. Uh, we drove all the way from Delaware to get to the limelight, and that we couldn't get in. You phony. Oh, gee. You know, uh, that's true. I am a phony, but for crying out loud, I'm not that kind of a phony. That's, uh, I, I don't, I don't operate. The... You know, speaking of, uh, of great uh, moments, uh, a couple of, a uh, couple of minutes ago, just before I went on the air. Now, I, I'm going to, I'm going to preface this by saying this is an amateur radio story. And uh, for that reason, uh, if you're, uh, you know, the, the, dear Mr. Shepard, I don't understand those stories about radio and all those things. So my husband Charles and I, we turn our ears off and listen to the other stations when you talk about that. Well, it's time to do that. And uh, I, I got a note uh, about an hour ago that uh, uh, some ham in the area. See, I'm an amateur radio operator, for those of you who don't know that. And uh, I got a, a call from an amateur here in the area about an hour or so ago, and he had been talking to a station in Antarctica. Uh, he was talking to uh, a KC4, which is a which is a, an Antarctica station, one of the naval ham stations on Bird Island. And uh, he was talking to this guy, and they were talking all night. They were sitting there. They started about eleven o'clock last night, and they talked to about four or five o'clock this morning. Just shooting the breeze, which is highly unusual. And he says, after about three hours, uh, he told the guy, he says, look, he says, uh, you're waiting for the mail plane. The mail plane was supposed to arrive. And he says, I'll just sit here and kill time. <clears throat> I'll kill time with you till the guy gets in, the plane. And so after about three hours of just shooting the breeze across 27 million miles of empty sea, uh, one of them, the guy here in this area, says, ah, he says, boy, I'll tell you, he says, only a couple of real... Uh, dedicated type night people would ever sit around and talk like this for 17 hours and say nothing. And the guy down in Antarctic, Bob, he says, you listen to Shepard? And the guy in this area says, well, yeah, he says, I do. He says, for crying out loud, do you know him? And he says, well, I've talked to him once in a while on ham radio. Here is a brief interruption of the Gene Shepard show to bring you the latest on the New York City transit strike. A mediation panel is meeting with the Transit Authority, possibly on union demands that the TA will have to increase its original package deal if there is to be any settlement. Mike Quill, victim of a heart seizure and possible attack, is in serious but not critical condition. The man who has taken his place at the bargaining table, Union Vice President Douglas McMahon, said the strike will go on until the Transit Authority makes what he calls a legitimate, substantial, reasonable, and responsible contract offer to the union. That's the latest on transit negotiations. All the details coming up on the 11 p.m. news. This is Mike Wallison in the WOR newsroom, returning you now to the Gene Shepherd Show, which is in progress. Don't worry about it. You don't have to cut it out. All right, now we're back on again. Okay, very good. Now I'll switch this on. Very good. Now we're back in business. 
Uh, if you'll give me a little existential music there, we will salute that little brief moment of uh, 20th century reality. I'm waiting for one of these radio stations to get together an album of uh, our favorite strike bulletins of the past 10 days, the past two years. Very good. All right. And so tomorrow night, to finish my... <laughs> there he goes, a little curmudgeon. <laughs> to finish my... That's too bad. I'll be here after he's gone. To, to, uh, to, to, finish, to finish... I was here before he came, too. And uh, to, to, uh, to finish the story, uh, for those of you who tuned in late, uh, this ham said that there's a whole crowd of ex-listeners to the show who are now in the Antarctica. You got it now? Uh, I hope the story makes sense. We cut out here a few moments ago. We'll be back. That they are now in the Antarctica, and tomorrow night at 1.30 a.m., I'm going to go on the air on my ham station, and I'm going to talk to this station down in the Antarctica. We have a schedule now set up, and I'm going to talk to a lot of ex-listener types from this area who cannot get this radio station at Bird Island in the Antarctic. Now, I, I want one thing. I want one guy out there. One listener type who is in this area to, to give us a call here, and we will record the message. I want him to give the password. I just want to hear one guy hollering, Excelsior, you fatheads. And I want to hear it so that I will rebroadcast it on my ham station tomorrow night and send it all the way up to the Antarctica. Who's going to, who's going to give me the, uh, the call sign here before we, before we go any further here? I just, I just want one, one guy, one listener to holler all the way down to the Antarctic. All right, now make sure he's legit now. Get, have, have him give you the countersign. That's the way to find out whether he's legit. Ah, see, he's not, he's not legit. No, 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 get rid of him. No, he, he flunked. <laughs> and, and while we're, while we're waiting, while we're waiting for that, I, I want to, I want to tell you, uh, uh, I guess, I guess the rest, the rest of that story about that, about that piece of music, uh, about, uh, the stars and stripes forever. And we'll never forget one scene. Bring bring it on again there briefly. Hold it there. It reminds me of Ahab. I remember one scene. I am with an entire company of men. We are we are standing at attention. We are on a field. The sun has been beating down now for seven straight hours, straight down. It was a stationary sun. It did not move a bit. The brass was beginning to peel off our belts. Our noses were beginning to peel off our noses. And we just stood swaying in the sun, back and forth, swaying in the sun. And I could see coming over the horizon, out of the corner of my eye, a tiny figure, just so tiny, he, was, he, 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 he looked like a grain of sand against the horizon of the ocean. A tiny figure with two other tiny figures flanking him. It was a world-renowned general who was later to become a president of the United States. This general, approaching company by company, battalion by battalion, regiment by regiment, inspecting belt buckles. And we stood in the sun, hour after hour after hour. And directly in front of us was our company commander. And he was beginning to sweat through. You could just see his, his khakis all dripping wet down through his suntan pants. 
You could see his polished shoes dripping with perspiration as he swayed in front of us. He had one of these real second lieutenant haircuts. You know, red neck, shaved right down to the nub. You could almost see his backbone shining through his skull. He stood there ahead of us, waiting. Our captain, waiting for the general to inspect Company K. Hour after hour we stood, and somewhere far in the middle distance, the band kept playing over and 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 over again, the stars and stripes forever. And that tiny figure got larger and larger as he approached us. And now he was already approaching so close you could almost make out it was a human being. You could almost see a face there. You could almost see two feet. And we had been at attention now for 17 years. And now... The excitement was growing in Company K. You could see bellies heaving. You could see perspiration flying like a thin spray, a thin cloud above the first and second platoons. Company K's proud banner flew like a limp dish rag in the breeze. And suddenly, with our horror, we saw that the general and his two aides had drawn up at attention before the regiment off to our left. They were saluting, were turning around, and were leaving the field of inspection. And somewhere in the distance, we heard the colonel holler, had lost again. Company K had lost in the moment of history. It's one brief chance to be inspected by a future president of the United States. We wound back to the mess hall, back to the beer hall, back to the PX. Little did we realize it was the harbinger of things to come. All right. You wanted to know why. Uh, you got that guy out there? Is this legit? Hello there, Mac. Excelsior, you fathead! Hey, wait a minute. Easy. Hey, holy smokes. Easy there. Now, you're, you're going to be talking all the way to the Antarctica. Now, hold it there, kid. Uh, you just heard what I said. You're going to be speaking all the way to the Antarctica. Yes. You know what? You know where that is, don't you? Yeah, that's all the way down south. Yeah, that's further than Trenton. Really? It's really way down there. Now, I want you to holler out to all them guys down in Antarctica. Let them know that you're here. All right, here we go. One, two, three. Excelsior, you fathead! Very good. <laughs> oh, man, I'll tell you, it, 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 it gets greater all the time. You know, speaking of uh, of uh, of how great things can get, if you'll please give me my uh, my existential music there for just a moment, I want to read something to you. Uh, and, and this this I have to preface this with some little pre comment. Uh, how many how many times have you gone to the theater, or gone to the movies, or read a novel, and you've been fascinated? You've watched 
what's going on. You've observed it. And uh, after you've watched it or have felt it or have, have uh, swum through this novel one way or another, you put it down you says, boy, that's just the way life is. And then you look around, you see the crack in the wall over the sink, you know, and you hear the refrigerator dripping. And it's never really the way life is, is. Never. Uh, I've, I've watched, I've watched, uh, probably a thousand dramas and movies in my time. And let's face it, they're entertainments. Almost all writing is an entertainment. And it can even be the most theological of writing. It can be great philosophical writing. What's it got to do with life? You know, walking around. You can sit down and you can wade through all of Camus. You know, it's entertaining. And you sit there and you pack it into your noggin. You stuff it down like you're, like you're rolling a cigarette and you nod your head and then you go out and your knee hurts and it rains and, and you hop off the curb and there's been 17 poodles there before you and you, you, uh, very carefully thread your way through it and you stand around and you wait for the bus to come and the rain and the wind blows a beer can past you and somebody whistles by in his thunderbird and hollers an obscenity at you. Well, you know, what's it got to do with all this stuff, you know, all this stuff you've been reading and the, the great generalities. And somebody sent me a, a piece of small town reporting. Now I'm going to read this to you for a specific reason. Have you ever had a chance to read a police blotter? A police blotter. Now this is a detailed, really not detailed in, in the, in the classical sense. Let's put it this way. It's a true account of the daily life of a squad car. And here is the, here is the blotter of a squad car in Narberth, Pennsylvania. Now, if you'll please give me a little... <laughs> this is their log. This is the things that they logged in one day. Now, if you'll give me a little existential music, the next time you go to the, go to the theater and you sit down and you watch Beckett, are you really sure that Beckett is absurd? Or is it Arthur Miller that's absurd? Who's, reading more about, who's writing more about life? Beckett writing Endgame than, let's say, uh, Neil Simon writing one of these little whoopee comedies about barefoot girl running through a park uh, carrying seven balloons, huh? Where is the thing? What, what is absurd and what is real? Listen, this is a... This is a... Calling car nine. Calling car nine. Log grows. Mileage piles up as squad car polices tiny borough. The Narberth Borough Council... At its regular monthly meeting, Monday night, learned that car number nine had covered 18,643 miles while patrolling the borough streets during one month. Following are some of the calls which ran up the mileage on a typical evening. One. Call from young girl on Essex Avenue to say that her girlfriend's boyfriend refuses to leave. Gone on arrival. Girlfriend gone with him. Nervous Woodside Avenue resident calls in the early morning hours to say that two boys on bikes are behaving in a suspicious manner. Boys turn out to be campouts who can't sleep. Woodside Avenue resident has problem. Her neighbor is burning trash. Smoke is coming in. 
two teenage girls engaging in fistfight at the Narver station. Told to break it up. Car 9 does so. Baby's playpen missing from Marion Avenue. Trash men took it by mistake. Men reported to be throwing firecrackers from apartment on North Narbert Avenue. Man denies he was doing anything of the sort. Ambulance needed for Price Avenue resident who slipped in bathtub. Citizen on Conway Avenue requires help in getting husband back into bed. Assistance given. Parents on Essex Avenue worried because parked truck out in front has paint on the top. Is afraid her children will get into it. Obliging trucker moves vehicle. Spills paint. Babysitter caring for five-year-old in her home reports that boy has been missing for two hours. Car 9 locates boy who has gone back to his own home. Conway Avenue lady again needs help in getting husband back into bed. Two intoxicated men sitting on lawn at Narberth and Rockland Avenues indulging in profanity sent on way. North Narbert Avenue citizen reports that in her absence, someone broke into her home, removed all furniture. Man is lying in front of post office, lady reports. Citizen with, quote, tight shoes, escorted home by car nine. Drag racing on Conway Avenue. Indecent exposure on Woodside Avenue. Dudley Avenue citizen complains children throwing trash into his garden. Noisy party on Hamden Avenue near midnight. Revelers told to shut up. Hamden Avenue citizen reports that her son just broke in, beat her up, broke the furniture, then left on a motorcycle, for which he had no license. Warrant suggested. That's the Tennessee Williams influence. Noisy party on Montgomery Avenue. Prowlers on Stewart Avenue. Loud record player on Windle Avenue. Disorderly boys at railroad station. Husband on Conway Avenue has fallen out of bed again. And on. And on. And on. And on. And on. Now, there you have the log of car nine in Narberth, Pennsylvania. That guy keeps falling out of bed over and over and over again. It's just like, it's exactly like waiting for Godot. Just like waiting for Godot. Do you remember the play? You remember the two bums sitting there and one keeps taking his shoe off and he keeps looking at his shoe and he keeps scratching his foot. And the other one says, why don't you take your shoe off? Scratch your foot. Well, you never know. You've got to get ready. you got to get set. You never know when he might come. My shoe here keeps falling off. He's got to tighten this lace. He puts it back on. The other one says, uh, how about something to eat? He says, well, not bad. 
Yeah, how about something to eat? Gee, we haven't eaten for a while, have we? Yeah, let's eat for a while. <laughs> and they look around a little bit to eat. The first one sits down again, takes his shoe off. The second one says, uh, why do you take your shoe off like that? first one says, well, you know, you never know. He might come. i got to get my shoe ready here. It keeps falling off. And on and on and on and on and on. Odd infinitum. Throughout all eternity. Throughout all, all eternity. It goes on. The shoe falls off. You put it on. The husband falls out of bed. They put him back in. Somebody steals the bike on Winwood Avenue. They find it. Someone steals a bike on Narberth Avenue. They don't find it. On and on and on. And Squad Car 9 rolls through 18,000 miles in one month. No wonder policemen have funny looks in their eyes. <laughs> you know, policemen and newsmen have the same thing. They've got that same look. They don't look like novelists. Uh, what was it that H.L. Mencken once said? Gee, a great line about that. Mencken said that the only way a man ever learns anything in this world is by observation, not by experience. He said, if you try to write out of experience, you will always suffer from insufficient data. Uh-oh, that's, that's, uh, that's inflammatory. <laughs> that one right there. And I, and I believe that's true. Uh, that, that, that so many people, uh, you know, you, you, it, it's so easy to, to become a, a naval investigator. And I mean this in the anatomical sense, not in the armament sense. That, uh, that you, you spend uh, a great deal of time investigating your own naval, and then you suddenly come up with a giant generality about navels. And that's about it. But there are feet. There are also ears as well as elephants and turtles and doves and squirrels, all of them running around out there in the darkness, all digging their own holes. And there I am sitting in a rented rowboat with two and a half feet of line out. I'm going to tell you what happened in that scene. I'm sitting there, see, and it had become so dark, so unbelievably dark. Have you ever been in a lake when it gets so dark you can't see the shore? You can't even see the sky? You can't see the water. In fact, you can't even see the boat you're sitting in. You're suspended in space. You can smell the water. You know there's a night. It's got to be above you, you figure. But it's the same color as what is below you. So is there a night when you can't see it? Just blackness. I'm sitting in my rowboat. And with two and a half feet of line out. And I'm perhaps nine or ten feet from the shore, in the shallowest of water. So shallow, I could just reach my hand out and touch the, the bottom through the water, which was icy. And I sat, waiting, drifting. Suddenly, I felt this slight tug on the line. Dunk, dunk. A bullhead does not hit the bait the way a smallmouth bass does or even a perch, or a pickerel. He's a very shrewd operator, the bullhead, big and black with those long hanging whiskers. He comes, he's a bottom feeder. He comes sneaking up and first nudges it with his nose, and you feel it, dum-dum. He backs away, 
dunk, dunk, dunk. And then he merely inhales the bait. And the next thing you know, there's a dead weight hanging on your line. And you pull it. He struggles a little bit. And he flops into the bottom of the boat. A big baby. Five pounds at least. In the darkness. He flops, thumps, bumps against the bottom. You reach down and you unsnap the hook. You put on another hook. Baited with a night crawl. You drop it in and instantly... Over and over, you haul big black bullheads in from the icy water. Three pounders, five pounders, six pounders, two pounders, one pounder, one after the other, as fast as you can pull them in. Over and over and over and over. Bullheads, and you hear them flopping on the bottom of the boat. And then... They begin to gasp in the darkness. Bullheads make sounds, you know, in the darkness. A kind of vague, barking, coughing sound. Other fish don't do this, with rare exceptions. You hear, ah, 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 ah. One after the other, they begin to bark. All by themselves and yet all together. In the bottom of a rented rowboat, in an icy lake. No night above, nothing but darkness below, and you can't even see the shore. Over and over and over, the bullheads come, the bullheads bite, and the bullheads are hauled into the boat. And then suddenly, without any warning, it stops. Just like that. Without so much as a suggestion of a warning, they're gone. And the great bullhead school has moved on to some other part of the lake and left behind their fallen comrades in the rented robot who never knew what hit them. And the darkness hung above, the darkness hung below, and somewhere you could smell the lily pads. It was a great night. Uh-huh.